Good evening. How are we? Now, how long has it been since you uh, came in and sat in a sermon? You had nothing in your hands. Are you freaking out right now? It's been a long time. It was weird for me just in the, I forgot what it's like to prepare, you know, a sermon and not make a handout. But anyway, we're just in this, every so often we get in a little place where um, Wednesday night doesn't lead to Sunday, so we're not going to start a new sermon series when Sundays and Wednesdays are off, so that gives me an opportunity to talk about whatever I want, which is exciting. So we're going to look at Psalm 73 tonight, so you can get your Bibles out and open to Psalm 73, or just grab that pew Bible open to page 668. It's one of my favorite psalms. I think uh, I was talking this morning in Sunday school that um, I'm getting close to, this is what happens when you stay in the same place so long. I am almost, within the next uh, year and a half or two years, I could potentially finish preaching through all 66 books of the Bible. We're getting close. Because most people move around so much, so they just keep redoing things they've already done. But since I've never moved, I just keep moving to the next thing I've never done. And I'm almost done, which is pretty amazing. Got a few uh, big studies left. And most of that was accomplished during all those years that I was preaching through three books at one time, which was very unhealthy for me. But... We're not doing that anymore. But anyway, Psalm 73. So the reason I say that, I was thinking about Psalm 73. I love it so much, and I realized I, I, I haven't taught on this text since uh, it, it was 10 years ago, the last time I taught on this text, which is crazy because it means so much to me, and I uh, read it so often and think about it so much, and I'm just excited to be able to spend some time together around it with you tonight. So let's pray and ask God's blessing on the reading and teaching of His Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word, God, Your perfect and errant gift of Scripture. We thank You especially for this psalm. I thank You for Asaph. I thank You for the transparency and the reality that comes to light in this beautiful passage of Scripture, Lord. I thank You for the way that it meets us in the everyday struggles of life. I thank you that something so ancient can be so incredibly relevant. Thank you, God, for this amazing and perfect gift. I pray that you'd give us ears to hear, that we might be transformed by the study of your word, all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to talk a little bit about an enough. And, uh, you know, I've been thinking for the last couple of weeks through John 21, and this has been sort of part of that whole process of just um, coming to the place where, uh, where God would be enough. And I mean by enough that we're totally satisfied in Him, just utterly, completely satisfied that we're not looking for anything else that 
Other things may come and go in our life, but the Lord is just fully satisfies us. Now, that just seems so crazy in this culture. I mean, we are in, we live in a culture that is so, just has this insatiable appetite for more, and it doesn't matter how much there is. It's just ridiculous. Um, when Rod was praying for the mission offering, what was flashing through my mind was um, all of the times that I've spent in, uh, on foreign soil in garbage dumps where children were foraging for food or orphanages where children had no hope of adoption. It was just survival or some little uh, village at the end of some uh, deserted pathway in the middle of the jungle of Brazil where no one ever went unless they were specifically going there to, uh, you know, to meet someone or unless they lived there. Nobody would ever go there. And yet you arrive and realize that people live with nothing. But they live. They, they survive. Amazingly, the human spirit has this incredible capacity to survive. Meanwhile... Back at home base, we turn on the TV. Some of you will have absolutely no idea what I'm about to talk about, but you'll still get the gist of it. Uh, what what uh, our, our culture is embroiled in right now is a, a lot of people are caught up. You know, the World Cup's going on. That's a big deal. And so there's these uh, soccer matches going on that suddenly, you know, uh, the next generation cares a lot about. I had a lot of conversations with uh, the older kids at VBS about the World Cup, which is interesting because most of their parents are utterly clueless about it. That and uh, there's this basketball player who is a free agent. I don't know if you recognize the name LeBron James, but uh, he plays a game with a round ball. And... Uh, He's about to sign a contract. We just don't know where that is. And I was thinking about how he's going to make $40 million a year to play a game. Now, I don't think that says anything necessarily negative about him. I think it says something negative about us. But I just want you to think a minute. $40 million a year, that's... That's $350,000 a game. He will make $769 a week. I'm just talking about salary. Just salary. His hourly wage, if he were to work 40 hours a week at $40 million a year he would make over $19,000 an hour. Now, $19,000 an hour, when the vast majority of the world, and I mean the vast majority of the world, lives on less than $10 a day, survives, feeds a family. We live in a culture where someone 
would make $19,000 an hour to play a game. And it's not enough. It'll be more with the next person and the next person and the next person. And where does it ever end? And then we have to think about ourselves. We have to ask ourselves questions like, okay, so that's some other reality that we're not in. But in our own reality, whatever's going on, what if our circumstances don't change? What if what's going on in your life right now uh, is the pattern that you'll be in for the foreseeable future or maybe for the rest of your life? I mean, what if, you're, what if your situation does change but not the way you want it to? What if your health declines suddenly? Or what if your health has already declined and you don't get better? What if it just stays where it is? What if you never get a better job? What if you are always in a situation where your finances are tight and you're struggling to make ends meet? What if your marriage remains turbulent and challenging? What, what if your spouse never becomes a follower of Jesus? What if your prodigal son or daughter never comes home? What if they remain a prodigal? What if those things happen? Well, I don't know what's going to happen, but I know that all those things could happen. And regardless of what is going to happen, which we'll never know, only God knows, what will we do? I mean, is God enough if what we're hoping for never comes to pass? You see, if, if the sufficiency of Christ in our life is, is in some way woven together with what we desire to be a reality, what we are hoping will one day be true, if His enoughness is connected to our hopes and dreams or wants or desires, there's a problem. Now, when you get to Psalm 73, you, you could start at the beginning and work your way through, which we'll do in a minute, but I just want you to, I just want to draw your eyes down to verses 25 and 26. This amazing passage where Asaph, the psalmist, writes, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon the earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength or my rock, the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Does that seem just totally unrealistic? Just completely out of reach that there's just no way that could ever be true in your life. You know, there's so many people who are navigating in and through and around Christianity that have this unspoken idea about God and the Scripture, that, that the Scripture is this book that contains these amazing stories about these superhuman people who 
God did extraordinary things through that and it, there's all these promises and all these principles that could that God could do but he won't do in my life or your life they're for someone else and sometimes it's because they don't see themselves that you know they're they're stuck in this comparison trap where they see everyone around them as more spiritual than them and so God must be doing greater things in them than he would ever in other people than he would ever do in in me it's almost as if somehow my salvation is second class, that other people have a greater level of salvation, and so God just does greater things in them. You know, the Scripture is about this amazing God who works in the most ordinary people, and honestly, the ordinary people that God's working in are the least likely. They're not even people who have attained or achieved any worldly or earthly success and yet those are the people God chooses they're the very people that would align with those who so oftentimes just can't seem to believe or understand that God would do something fantastic or wonderful in their life because why because again not that God can't, but because a lot of times when I say God would do something wonderful or amazing in your life, what comes to your mind is something that you've determined is, is wonderful or amazing. You see, if I say, this is what happens. When I say, would God do something wonderful and amazing in your life, then what do you think? Do you, are you thinking like, you mean like, like call me to preach so I'd be like you? No, that's not at all what I mean. I mean, maybe something far better than that, which may be far less visible than that. But it would be greater because it would be in you. In other words, that what God desires to do in you, what God can do in you, there's nothing greater than that because that's what he has for you. Just this point where you could be satisfied, utterly and completely satisfied in God. That's the journey that Psalm 73 takes us on. Look at verse 1. Truly God, he's good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. You see, he begins Asaph, the worship leader. He begins the psalm by, by expressing his, I love this because this is the character and nature of God, that, that the psalmist understands the God of whom he's about to speak of. He knows the character of God. And so he declares it at the outset of the psalm. And then he drives into the reality of what's going on in his life. He says, verse 2, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Notice, he starts out with, look at who this good God is. And then there's almost like this, there's no break in your scripture. But there almost appears like there should be this huge gap between verse 1 and 2 but for me for me my heart my feet had almost stumbled my steps had nearly slipped for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked see this this common reality where when we get to a place where God is not enough and I mean enough I don't mean just Enough on the surface. 
I mean genuinely and truly enough. We lose perspective. We utterly lose perspective about what's actually going on. See, he, know, he understands that his problem is he's become envious of the boastful. He sees the, the wicked around him prospering. He looks around and he sees, look at all these people who do the wrong thing and yet they seem to, to get better and wealthier and more prosperous or fruitful or whatever the case may be. Look at verse 4 and following. For there's no pangs in their death. Now look at how he's lost sight of reality. He's got the total, oh yeah, there's no pain in their death, but their strength is firm. That's not true. You see, he's, he's starting, he sees things all blurry. They're not in trouble as other men. They're not plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than a heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens. Their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore, his people return here and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Now, that's a faulty perspective. But you see, it makes sense to our flesh. See, you know what? What doesn't make sense to... Uh, to a Christ follower who has found himself in a difficult season is a pagan who seems to be flourishing, is an unbeliever who seems to be prospering. See, we, this, this idea that there, there can be these people who don't follow God and yet seem to find happiness, it bothers us. You see, when we're down, that bothers us because we think, well, why? And it's bothering Asaph. And it's so refreshing to me that the Scripture is so real with us. You know, what happens? What, what, what do you do with the people that are in your family or live in your neighborhood who, who work where you work or, or just around you that you know, your friends, your acquaintances, whoever it is, they don't follow God and things always seem to go their way? What do you do with that? What do you do with the fact that they seem to live a better life than you? How do you deal with it? What do you do when, you know, you're, you're striving to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and which is far from easy. And so it's this, uh, you know, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about, you know, how I'm back in the cyclone. And, uh, you know, especially when school starts, it, it'll be this never-ending, you know, every day. It won't just be, you know, sitting at the table working on homework. But for us, it will be a daily, continual, nonstop uh, process of memorizing Scripture. Continual. Both of my kids go to Christian school, so they have to recite big chunks of Scripture every week and then all the Awana verses to keep up with that. I mean, it, it's 
seven days a week. There's not one day that passes that we're not, we're just, because if you get a day behind, you never catch up. So you're just on it, on it, on it, on it all the time. Driving down the road, I mean, it's just second nature. We're reciting verses and memorizing scripture. And isn't that wonderful? But here's the thing. Yes, but if I'm honest, it wears you down. It wears you down. Good things wear you down. And you're, you're working and you're working and you're working. And, and then, you know, there's uh, these kids in your kids' class who, they're not good kids. And there you're sitting at the end of the year at the awards banquet and little Johnny Heathen wins the citizenship award. And you're like, really? You know what I mean? Like, seriously? I mean, what's with that? But you see this, you know, this prospering, you know what I mean? And like... uh, you work so hard. You you're you're careful with your money. You wanna you wanna be you wanna live debt free. You wanna you wanna be a good steward of what God gives you. And and so you you do without a lot of things so that you can so that you can live in a way that financially honors God. And and so as as you're starting to to think about the potential that God may open the door where you might get a promotion at work, and your honest to goodness thought process is, is that. You know, God, if, if you choose to allow me to, to get a promotion, it, it, it would just be m- more of an opportunity for me to give more to the work of your kingdom. And because you're working so hard, and, and yet there are people that work in the same office with you that are utterly irresponsible with their finances, and they're, they're buying boats and campers they can't afford, and they're drowning in debt, and they're always, you know, out acting like they're having so much fun, and you're always saying in the back of your mind, don't worry, it's going to catch up, don't worry, it's going to catch up, and then they get the promotion. And you're just thinking, like, where's the justice in all of this. Over in the youth building tonight. There's high school students who. This is their everyday reality. Every day. They, they grow up in, in church. And they grow up in, uh, in these in strong homes. And, and they get to high school. And they have all these. Uh, commitments in their mind, all these uh, values that they're determined to, to stick with. But here's what grinds them into pieces. Is that, is that uh, they, they start to realize that Mondays at school are the days when the popular kids are talking about all the the, the partying and the fun that happened all weekend. And, you know, at first, that's okay because, again, what, what are they? They're thinking, well, that's okay because, you know, it's going to catch up with them. Or they're going to, you know, they're going to get arrested or they're going to get pregnant or something bad's going to happen. But, you know, it's, 
it's, it's Monday after Monday after Monday after Monday. It's always the big, and it just keeps going and going and going. It seems like nothing ever goes wrong, and it just keeps going and going. And they have to start really digging deep into their heart and saying to themselves, like, what is the deal here? You know, why does it seem like that doing the right thing is, is so difficult and so, so hard? And, you know, the kid that, that sits next to him, that never studies and is always cheating, and everyone in the class knows that they're cheating and that they, they never do their own work, and yet the teacher somehow never catches them, and they always seem to squeak by. And, and you know, so when you, listen, don't think that when, you're, when it's, it's late and they're tired and they, you know, they get home and they know they have a test and they just want to go to sleep, but they're looking at their textbooks and they're thinking, you know, it would be so much easier if I could just cheat like other people instead of doing it the hard way. You see, there's these crossroads that constantly, this isn't just, I mean, this is just everyday reality all the time. It just seems as if so oftentimes when we take our eyes off of what it ought to be on, we start looking around. The world just seems to be filled with people who are doing everything the wrong way and yet prospering. And if we're not careful, we get distracted. We start to let our mind wander into the ridiculousness of you know, it, it may be this far out thing like, oh, what would it be like? What would I do if I made $19,000 an hour? But it's ridiculous. What would you do? Who cares? You never will. And if you do, you know you're going to tithe. <laughs> but it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. What's the point? I mean... How it, would, it, would it somehow make you happy? Or would your problems just change into a whole new set of problems? In fact, would you not, just if you were honest with yourself, think to yourself, I have a whole new and even bigger, in a lot of ways, problems that I had before. So for the psalmist, you see, he's, he's looking around and, he's, and he's, he's starting to say these things like, they're always at ease. They're not struggling like I struggle. Their, their riches just keep increasing. Well, that's not true. You know that, uh, for example, in, in the city limits of Gulfport, not too long ago I saw a demographic study. And if you, if you look at where the wealthiest section of Gulfport is, where the highest concentration of wealth is, it's also far and away the highest rate of suicide. Same place. But you know what? It doesn't seem like that when you don't get the promotion. It doesn't seem like that when, you know, you're just struggling to do the right thing. The second thing I think the, the psalmist shows us in this next section, it begins in verse 13, is that when God's not enough, we, we, this is so crazy. 
but this happens to me and you, all of us. We start thinking that God owes us something because we've been doing things the right way. Look, look at what he says in verse 13. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. Oh, really? Verse 14, for all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. See, we, we start to feel as if somehow the flesh, it makes sense in the flesh that if we do the things God wants us to do, if we live the way God wants us to live, that then he's going to do the things we want him to do. But that is the prosperity gospel. That is a false gospel. That's unbiblical. That's not at all what the Bible says. Not at all. The Bible doesn't say that. But we believe in our flesh. We get, we get, we get sucked into this delusion that by... listen. God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Is that not the truth? Well, yes. But here's my question. Who determines the reward? Let's take a quick inventory of how many things in our life we would count today. If I gave you a piece of paper and a pen, I said, I want you to write down 10 rewards in your life. And you write those 10 things down. Then we go back and let's go through them one by one and say, now, when they came into your life, did you see them as a reward? Or did they become a reward? Very few of them you saw as the reward that you now hold them dearly and precious as. You see, because we're not the determiner of that. And so although God is faithful in His holiness and righteousness and sovereignty and goodness we want to pollute that with our flesh and we want to twist it around and say well listen we've all we've all been in a ditch we've all been down and we've thought to ourselves. I'm doing everything I know to do. Why is this continuing? Even though in, in my heart I know that is utterly wrong. I still sometimes feel that way. And this is what, this is what Asaph is, is embracing. I mean, he's embracing this for all to behold. We start looking at our lives and it just magnifies what's going on with the, the, the ungodly around us and we, we find it even more difficult to reconcile the two. And then there's a turning point when we get to verse 16. The whole, the whole worldview, the whole experience of, of Asaph shifts in verse 16. He says, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. What was too painful? How do I understand? Why, why, am I, why don't I get better? Why doesn't, why doesn't this happen? Why is this this way? You know, why? I mean, 
Why me? Why are there people that are utterly healthy and, and are, are recklessly using their, their, their health? You know what I mean? They're doing things that are killing them purposely, and I'm fighting to live. Someone you love's fighting to live. Well, why have you faithfully served God and yet you have a, a prodigal child and there's people out there that are just, just totally winging it and just letting their kids do whatever they want to do and they're just totally in the world and yet their kids and them have this wonderful, great relationship. How do you explain that? It's just too painful is what the psalmist says. I mean, you know, is there ever going to come a point in my life where I'm not just struggling financially and it just seems like other people it just comes so easy to them why it's too painful for me until see verse 17 until I went into the sanctuary of God then I understood their end you see that when we enter into the presence of God, then suddenly clarity, it's like the, the clouds, the smoke begins to clear and we begin to, to see. Now, it's not like we're just instantly out of the, of the woods, but we begin to see. Our perspective begins to change. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation in a moment. They're utterly consumed with terrors. Look at what he says in verse 20. As a dream, when one awakes, so, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved. What, what? And I was vexed in my mind. Why was his heart grieved? You see, as he began to, he came into the presence of God and he... He was reacquainted with the holiness of God and the way that this holy God responds to unholy things, that all sin will come under judgment, that there will be ultimate justice in the world. Like he awakes out of this dream, he's sort of groggy, and he's thinking, as the Lord awakes, you shall despise their image. And then he was grieved. He says, I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. You see, prior to coming into the sanctuary of the Lord, the way I saw things, now I see how, how ridiculous it is. See, when I, when, I, when I encounter the reality of the holiness and the justice of God, I realize that all of the things that I didn't understand and that were plaguing me and bothering me, how, no matter how real and severe and serious they may be, they pale in comparison. You see, what he's saying is, is I would much rather know God than make $19,000 an hour and die apart from Him. That's what he's saying. He's saying there is nothing, there is nothing that you would ever trade for knowing God. Because it may be difficult today, but it will not stay that way. See, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians, these verses will come up, verse chapter 1. Here's what he says. We are bound to thank God always, he says to the Thessalonians, for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because... 
your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds towards each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith and all your persecutions and tribulations you endure. Now, right? Of the hardships that you endure. We're so grateful and so thankful, Paul says, for you because we see you suffering. Now look at what happens. Which is manifest evidence. It is the proof of the righteous judgment of God. What? That you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. You see the shift? Let's look at it from the other other side. And to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. See? These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes in that day to be glorified in His saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. Therefore, we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of His goodness and the work of faith with power that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. See, that's what Asaph said. When I realized where all this was going, I realized two things. My first emotion was just regret at how foolish I had been to get caught up in the temporary things and the plight of my seemingly real but small circumstances. And the second thing is grief for those who are separated from God. That you see the, 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 the perspective changes to the point where You could one minute be thinking, wow, what would it be like to make $19,000 an hour? And the next minute you're like, that poor man and his family. If they don't receive Jesus, all the money in the world, what would it profit a man if he gained the whole world? And lose his own soul. You see? Perspective. So now the psalmist says, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. See, that's what happens. We, something happens. It sets us back spiritually, emotionally. I mean, I know this psalm so well because I live it. It's my life. I'm either either swimming through the cycle of this psalm personally or I'm swimming with it at all times of my life through other people. Just walking with them through this cycle. Something some crash comes into our life and it sets us back spiritually and we it 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 
it hurts us. It, it, it shakes us. It rattles our faith a little bit. And it's not that we don't lose our salvation, obviously, but we get rattled. And we get distracted. And our perspective gets, gets, gets twisted. And we start to see things in a, in a, in a wrong way. And then as we, as we come back into the presence of God and we get clarity, what do we do? Oh, we, we say, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. I mean, we're, when, you, when you reconnect, when you, when you come into the sanctuary of God, then, boy, you're just, you're just gripping it. That grief over those that don't know him is just uh, overwhelming you, and you're just, you just want to abide there. And you say to God, you'll guide me with your counsel and afterwards receive me to glory. See, once the psalmist went into the presence of God, he recovered his spiritual balance. His realization that there's a destiny for all of us. And for those, no matter how wonderful this life may seem, there's a destiny. And we shouldn't wish separation from God on anyone, on anyone, no matter who they are. It should grieve our hearts and not make us feel better about ourselves. It should break our hearts. And Asaph's recognizing that all through the cycle, see, even when he was saying things that weren't even true. Oh, look at the wicked. Oh, look at them. They're, they're never down. They're always happy. And they're just continually, the more wicked they are, the more they prosper. That's not true. But even when he was saying that, you know what he's acknowledging here? Even when I was in that part of the cycle, where was God? Right there with me. See? He guides me. He holds me. He's with us. And then we come up out of it. He begins to see the true blessing of knowing Christ and following Him. See, we have to be reminded, don't we? We do. We don't, we don't just have a steady, constant, robotic fervor for the things of the Lord. That's not, that's not how... If you have that, well, then it's false and you're probably lost. So that's not how it works. It's some varying degree of hotter and colder and hotter and colder and up and down. And there's times where we get blindsided by life and we don't see it coming and it it takes the wind out of us but if we land look at boy asaph he lands in verse 25 whom have i in heaven but you there is none on earth that i desire besides you that to me is the essence of what enough is right there i mean 
I don't desire anything besides you. There, that means that there are things that I might desire. There are things that might be nice. There are things, but there's nothing besides you. In other words, if you're not in the equation, I don't want anything else. I only want what you're in the equation with. And the reality that I just spoke of about just being human, my flesh and my heart fail. It's not they may fail. They fail. They fail. See, your, your flesh fails. And you have flesh, and I have flesh, and it fails. And when it fails, you know, my heart fails. My emotions plummet. I get wounded. I get dark. I get hurt. There are times where, uh, where it's, it's, it's far more difficult than it is at other times. And I don't understand why. And, I don't, and, and we can't predict it or know what's coming. It just is. It's our flesh and our heart. They fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And then he, he turns to the final two verses. It's sort of like his, his, his summary testimony of everything that he said in the previous 26 verses. And, man, it's just so amazing. You know, he summarizes these two realities that exist. You know, on one hand, that the wicked will ultimately perish in their end if they don't turn. And that what we've got to do is, like Jesus said this morning, follow him. You, you, you get the, it's, it's like Paul saying in 2 Thessalonians, it's, it's be about the business of God, glorify God in yourself, that those who, are, who, who seem as if they're your enemy, who seem as if they're, they're prospering, don't perish apart from him. Do all you can do to impact them. But that reality is balanced next to the second reality that God's going to be with the righteous. And they're going to be with Him and nothing can ever change that. Nothing. That's just it. Nothing can change that. Wow. I just need to know that. I need to know that when it seems like things are just utterly going the wrong direction. God's with me and I'm going to be with Him and nothing can ever change that. Sometimes I say to myself, literally, I've said this before, I literally say to myself out loud, I'm saved because sometimes I feel like that's all I got. But you know what? It's all I need. It's just a perspective shift. I'm saved. Like, okay, maybe I don't know how I'm going to get through tomorrow. Maybe I don't know how I'm going to explain this. Or I don't know how my heart is going to survive this heartbreak. But I know, but I'm saved. He's with me. And I'm going to be with him. And nothing can ever change that. Oh, ho, ho. So he says, for indeed, look at these last two verses. For indeed, those who are far from you 
shall perish. See the one truth. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. And look at the other truth. But it is good for me to draw near to God. See, what was his turning point? The sanctuary of God. Everything turned when he got near to God. It is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God. Now, this is the worship leader. This isn't him saying, I just got saved. This is him saying, oh, I've been saved. But I just came through a dark season. And this is how I came up out of it. It was good for me to draw. I drew near to you. I put my trust in you that I may declare all your works. My perspective shifts and I start to realize, wait a minute. Things are not as they seem. Now, I just want to show you one more thing as we sort of pull this to a close. I want you to see the, the spectacular nature of Scripture just in the simplicity of things like pronouns. You can just notice, or maybe if you want to make a notation in your Bible, but in the first 12 verses, the dominant pronoun is they. Because Asaph is going, they're doing this, and they do this, and they, 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 they. He's, his focus is, is external and outward. And so it's all they in the first 12 verses. Then in the next section, 13 through 17, the pronoun shifts to I. You notice how he's now, everything's about an I this, an I that. And then in the next section, 18 to 22, it shifts to so it's they, then I, and then look at 18 to 22. It's all you, capital Y-O-U, God. He shifts to, he's, he's not comparing, he's not looking at people and what they have. He's not looking at himself and what he's done and how wrong he is. Then he starts looking at God, and then look at what happens. When it shifts in 23 through 28, the pronouns of you and I are combined. In other words, now it's all, it, it pulls, him and God come together. Asaph says, you, O Lord, have set your hand upon me. See? Look at what God's saying to us. I don't know if you ever realized this or not. But this is the story of our lives, and so it can teach us something. And this is the, this is the warning, I think. The, this, the beauty, there's so much beauty, and there's so much to, to, to cling to in this psalm, but there's also some, some understanding and some warning. What do you think Asaph's saying to us tonight as far as? He's saying, folks, look at you. Here you are on a Sunday night, your little remnant Sunday night crew. Bad weather outside. Here you are. Aren't you doing good? Look at you, you overachievers. God's going to bless you. Is that what Asaph's saying? 
No. He might, but that's not what Asaph's saying. What's Asaph saying? Be careful. Be careful of the they. Be careful. Don't let your pronoun be they because that's where the cycle begins. It doesn't start with, oh, look at what I'm doing, look at what I'm doing, look at what I, it starts with, look at what they're doing. Then you fall into the comparison trap and go, but how come I'm doing all? Be careful. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Don't start looking around at the world around you and assessing. You know, if you find yourself getting to a place where you feel as if the, the wicked around you are prospering, even, the, even the, the unbelievers in your own family where it always seems to go good, or maybe, you're, maybe you have unbelieving siblings and your parents who claim to believe or it seem to always favor them or whatever. I mean, look at how twisted this thing gets. Be careful. Be careful. Because you are setting yourself up for a roller coaster ride. Now, the beauty is, is that there's going to be times where this is just going to happen. It's just going to happen, okay? Yeah, I'm not, I don't want you to leave here tonight thinking, now, if I just apply this system, I'm just not going to go down. This. No, 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 no. That's not how life works. There's going to be times where your feet are just going to get knocked right out from under you. That's just going to happen, okay? I'm simply saying this. Just be careful about they that leads to I. But, if, but when it does, when your feet get knocked out from under you, when, when your heart is, is just broken, listen, when your flesh and your heart fail you, when you're just despondent and depressed and just, it's just terrible. Get up out of the bed. Turn the light on. Draw near to God. Get rid of the they. Get rid of the I. Focus on the you, and as you draw near to him, then what you're gonna, what's going to happen is then he's going to... See, see, look, this is a thousand years before James comes along and says, if you draw near to God, what happens? What did James say? Hell, what? Hmm. Isn't that what Asaph just said? They, I, you, he draw near to you, me and him. That'll bless your heart in a dark valley. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I don't even know I could never.